Thanks a lot. Morning. Oh, I always pray yet again. I don't know. I was called on this by somebody at Dwell. Like, you always, we pray and then you get up and you pray again. I'm like, I don't know. It just seems wrong not to pray. <laughs> We're going to pray again. Oh, Father, thank you. You're here already this morning. Let me speak freely. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're a visitor today and you pulled in, you, you probably read our sign, and our sign says, Intimacy with God. And I feel like it's very important to clear this up right off the bat. Okay? I'm a guy in America in my 30s, and when I think of intimacy, I think of some things. I think of candles, perhaps, and jazz music. <laughs> I think of when I used to work at Walmart, and there were some terrible days that I had to do price changes or work backstock in the intimates department. All right? And neither one of those things got me excited. <laughs> like, that's not what I want to carry into my private time with Jesus in the morning, okay? That would be really, really awkward with all caps and italics with an exclamation point on the end. That's not what we're talking about. I think that I'm going to replace that with this. And if, if I don't, if I say intimacy, this is what I want you to hear, okay? An ever-deepening relationship with God and an ever-deepening knowledge of who God is. Is that fair? Is that a little less weird than saying intimacy? Maybe I'm the only one with that problem, but I, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe girls don't have that problem, but I'm sorry. Jesus was a guy. <laughs> All right. This morning, I'd like, to, I'd like to do some things. I have a continuum I'd like to work on. First, I'd like to talk about how God is trustworthy, but I'm not going to try to justify the trustworthiness of God. I'm not going to try to explain how God is trustworthy and all the ups and downs of life and every trial and situation. Um, there are plenty of good books on that. That'd be great. But I'm going to work from a standpoint of believing that. Because God says he is. And I think that the whole story of the Bible, and indeed the whole story of my life and most of our lives, is that God is trustworthy. It's a fact. And I want to talk about why do we need a trustworthy God? And then I want to talk about how there's this, this thing that happens when we realize I'm dependent on God. I need God to come through for me. You know, And when I depend on God, and I experience the fact that God is trustworthy and He comes through for me, then my relationship with Him deepens. Then my knowledge of Him, of him deepens. I depend on God. God gives me grace. I say, wow, that was amazing. And our relationship grows. I want to look at that, and then I want to look at three heroes of relationship in the Bible. Three guys that had intimacy down pretty well. And they're all very different. Different personalities, different settings. Moses, Paul, and Job. And I'm hoping that all of us can identify with one or more of these people and that we can both be encouraged by them and their stories and also be a little challenged. Because it wouldn't be a Sunday morning if you didn't get a little bit of a challenge. Right? I mean, come on. I'm sure that's why everybody comes, is to feel challenged. Nobody's here just to feel good. Okay, I digress. <laughs> First, okay. We're going to talk about something, first of all, that really irritates Anthony. And we're going to do that with a really good verse. And that's 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is an awesome verse. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful, trustworthy, faithful, faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That is a great verse. I love that verse. Many times I have claimed that verse over my life. And what that verse says is that God is watching out for you. 
He's not going to let you get squished. Our senior pastor, Cameron Wright, preached a message a while back, and he says sometimes the temptation is too much, but God is good, and he's going to give you a way out. Right? So either it's not going to be too much, or if it is too much, there's going to be a way out of Dodge. You're going to get an escape. You know? And that's because God is faithful. You can trust him. But this verse does not mean what I have heard it mean, what people say it means. And I've grown up in church, and I've heard this from the pulpit, and I've seen well-meaning Christians walk up to suffering individuals and pat them on the back and get that look in their eyes, you know, like, I feel for you. And they say something like this. The Bible says, God won't let anything into your life that you can't handle. Just remember. Remember, God's not going to let you go through anything you can't handle. I am saying this morning that that is garbage. (laughs) We are born into a situation we cannot handle. We are born into a situation where we are fallen. We have a massive sin problem. And the Bible is about Jesus somehow making that right, which he does. But from the moment we enter the world, we are dependent on a God who better be trustworthy because he's our only hope. And if you really hold on to this belief that I can handle everything that comes to me in my life, I've got it. I just, I want to ask, when does that start? Could you handle it at six months old? Five? Twelve? Eighteen? Everybody thinks they can handle life at eighteen. You know? Amen. Send me off. But the sad truth is, the world is riddled with people of all ages who are in the process of being, or have already been, overcome. They couldn't do it. And you can't do it. We need a trustworthy God. So who needs that? Just just those unsaved people, right? The people that aren't here this morning. You know, God's going to let them get squished so they can be like, Oh, God, I need you. Partially true. They need the Lord. But I believe that as we become disciples of Jesus and we follow God, He intentionally puts us in situations where we need to be dependent on Him. Look at every call in the Bible. Sarah talked this morning about uh, Deborah, and I believe it was Barak, the judges. Like, hey, go take out these guys with 900 iron chariots. Awesome. I know that Barak didn't say, I've got this. I've got this handled. Don't need you, God. Thanks for the idea, though. I'm going to go take care of business. You know, we are dependent, all of us. (coughs) Deliver these people dependent on God. Deliver a message dependent on God. You know, everyone is dependent. Amen? Awesome. Foundation established. James 4, 6. He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. When we realize we're dependent on God, that takes humility, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And that irks some of us. But this is actually good. Because when we're humble, we get help. And if you're proud, you don't get help. That's a pretty basic continuum. You know, but the Bible is full of people that God helped. There's a king named Uzziah in the Old Testament, and God helped him so much until he got strong. And when he got strong, he got proud. And then he's like, I don't need you, God. I've got this. Didn't end well for him. King Asa. God helped King Asa so much. And then all of a sudden a new trial came, and Asa decided, I'm not going to go to God this time. Asa's got this. You know, Didn't end well for him. Peter says, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to run. I'm going I'm I'm, I'm to die for you. I've got this. 
That didn't go so well either. Can we acknowledge this morning that the spirit of I've got this is one of the worst attitudes you can have for intimacy with God. You don't got it. None of us do. But there's good news. But in order to tell you about it, first I have to talk about squats. Has anyone done squats? Anybody? Awesome. I go to Planet Fitness. It isn't a gym. It's Planet Fitness. They're not lying when they tell you that. They don't have a free Olympic bar. You can't really do squats. But I got to go to the gym with my buddy. And they had everything I could imagine. It was like a holiday, man. We ran right to that squat rack. And when you do squats, you put it on your back, so there's a burden on your back. And you're supposed to go low, really low. Actually, your legs are supposed to be below parallel with the ground. And then you stand up. So you're not just bearing up under the weight, right? You have a goal. And that goal is to move the weight a certain distance. I'm doing it. And my buddy's kind of waiting for his turn. And we're saying things like, you've got this. You've got this. Man, you got it. And we did. Because we're only doing like 90 pounds. No worries. <laughs> no, we've got it. And he's off. You know, he's checking his phone. And he's talking to his buddies while I'm doing my set. But as we added weight, there came a time where we added a lot of weight. And we both knew, without saying to each other, this is a lot of weight. I don't know if I can do this. It was kind of unspoken. And I got under the weight and I stood up under it and I'm bearing up under the weight and I'm like, all right, now I've got to do a repetition. I've got to do my squat. And I noticed in the mirror that my buddy has positioned himself behind me without me ever saying anything because he's going to spot me. And should I fail, should my legs give out or my back go out, the way you help someone on a squat is you embrace them from behind. Your arms go up under their arms, your chest to back, and then your weight and your strength lifts the weight. Right? This is what God does for us all the time. We're dependent on God. But if God is walking you up to a squat rack loaded with 500 pounds and he says, why don't you go ahead and do that? Don't worry too much about it. So it's going to be the spotter moving the weight anyway. Yeah. All right? Let's talk about three guys. Moses, Paul, and Job, if I have time. Which I don't, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> These guys have different personality types. They're way, way, way different. The first person I'm going to talk about is Moses. Moses is the heavy hitter of intimacy, maybe in the entire Bible. I don't count Jesus because I feel like that's cheating, you know? All right? But the Bible says in Exodus 33:11 that Moses got to talk to God face-to-face as a friend. And face-to-face doesn't mean an actual physical face. That's, that's kind of a figure of speech for intimately. You know, face-to-face. Like, if you got to speak to a king before his face, like, I can go before the face of the king. It's like, awesome. Wow, nobody gets to do that. Moses did. And in fact, we can look in the Bible. This is how God describes his relationship with Moses. This is Numbers 12, 6 through 8. This is God describing his relationship with Moses. Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions... Or I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. And then he rebukes the people that were giving him a hard time. And he says, why weren't you afraid to talk about him? If we're this close, Almighty God and Moses, why are you giving Moses a hard time? This is clearly a special relationship, right? Right. 
In Numbers 12.3, it says that Moses was a very humble man. The most humble man on the face of the earth. Remember James 4.6, if God gives grace to the humble, Moses is in the perfect position to have an incredibly deep relationship with the Lord. But it gets a little deeper because that word for humble is a nav in the Old Testament. And it's, uh, it's another Greek word that I've forgotten in the New Testament. <laughs> it's not that important. But it basically means lowly, not far off the ground, afflicted. Several commentators suggested that Moses was the most afflicted man on the face of the earth. A lot of times in Psalms, that's what this word means. And maybe this is the point at which you can identify with Moses. Maybe you feel afflicted. Clark, a commentator that we use a lot here, suggests the appropriate translation of this verse is, Moses was, you ready for this? Depressed. The most depressed man on the face of the earth. And this is the guy that God talks to face to face? Wow! I don't have time to go through all the whiny conversations Moses has with God. (laughs) But if you read through... And he's a hero, and I'm not saying he's not a hero, and I'm not saying I wouldn't do exactly what Moses did, but Moses delivered these people. Oh, not me. I can't do that. Send somebody else. I'm going to work a few miracles and prove I can do it. Oh, I'm still not convinced, Lord. What if they don't listen? Oh, my goodness. You know, every problem that he has, he's not a pillar of confidence. Right? He's just not, you know. At one point, he tells the Lord in Numbers 11, look, if it's going to be this way, if I have to deal with these people and you're not going to be more forthright with me, just kill me. Just kill me if I found favor in your eyes so that I don't have to continue going through this. Amen. And God is like, oh my gosh, Moses. Moses, I'm going to give you 70 helpers. I'm going to bring the people meet. Don't worry about it. They're friends. If you identify with Moses, if you feel like your life is a train wreck that got hit by a plane that got stuck in a sinkhole and then there was a natural gas explosion and a wildfire passed over it and you don't even know what to do and you're drowning and you're like, please, God, help me. I don't have a problem admitting dependence. You know, just show up. I need something. If that's you, be encouraged. You're in a great spot, man. (laughs) You're in a great spot because God gives grace to the anav to the afflicted, to the humble. Moses was the most anav, whatever that means, person on the face of the earth, and he was friends with God. But let's also be challenged. The Lord had to remind Moses, my arm is not too short. He would only let Moses complain so much. And then he'd say, pause, buddy. This is me. Remember what I did? Remember what I got us through? I am trustworthy. And then Moses would say, okay. And he'd go and tell the people what God told him. So let's be encouraged. Let's also be challenged by Moses. Maybe that didn't register at all for you. Maybe you've never been depressed in your life. You think that's just a terrain feature. Maybe you're the kind of person that's checking things off their to-do list while the coffee maker is going. In fact, it's too slow and sometimes you just eat the beans. Right? Maybe... You're the type of person that only gets four hours of sleep a night, and darn it, that's an annoyance, because while you're sleeping, you're not getting anything done. Maybe you're the kind of person that thinks of a vacation and gets horrified. Maybe you're the kind of person that thinks, what do I want to do right now? And you start thinking of ways you can be productive. 
that's not me, but maybe that's you, you know? And if that's you, I think you'll identify with Paul a lot more than Moses. Paul, I, I called him the Apostolator earlier. That was for Rick Swyatt. Got to work in my Terminator reference. Paul was crazy, man. Paul was like this hard-charging type A personality before he met Jesus, and he turned into a type A plus after he met Jesus. Right? The Galatian church was founded by accident. He got deathly ill, and he thought, well, while I'm here, deathly ill, I might as well start a church. I might as well preach to these people. He realized that he could die and go before the Lord and be with the Lord in glory. And he thought, well, I'm not going to pick that because then I can't get any more work done. You know, Paul's the kind of guy that works to support himself and the people he's with while preaching full-time and starting churches, and he can't even hold anybody else to that standard. He's like, a worker's worthy of his wages. But as for me, you know, I just don't want to be a burden on anybody. So I'm going to work 80 hours a week, and I'm going to preach. You know, when did he sleep? I don't know. But he wouldn't have picked to do anything else. You know? Some of us relate with Paul. But Paul had a different challenge to his intimacy. If we can pull up uh, Philippians 3. This is Paul talking about Paul. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He's talking about having confidence in your natural abilities without God. And he says he has reasons for this confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in, in themselves and their flesh... I have more. This is Paul, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I come from the right place, the people of God. Of the tribe of Benjamin. I know exactly my lineage. That's a big thing. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. That is the strictest possible sect of of Judaism. He's following the rules like nobody's business. He's like, what's the most difficult way to live this life? That's the one I want to do, and I'm going to do it better than anybody else. But that's not quite enough for Paul. Next verse, please. As for zeal, persecuting the church. What am I going to do in my spare time? I think I'll persecute the church, and I'm going to do it with such zeal that I'm going to stand out, right? And while I'm doing it, as for righteousness based on the law, I'm going to be faultless. If I got this is the worst prayer you can pray for intimacy. It is interesting to me that Paul actually did have it. He got it, man. He was doing it. There was nothing in Judaism that he was like, man, I really wish I could be better at following that law. I really wish I could be better at living this way. I wish I could know more scripture. He had it handled. If anyone in the history of the Bible could rely on themselves, it was Paul. Right? But Paul can realize something. We're not worthy of our own trust. Can we have the next verse, please? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That word knowing right there is genosko, actually, and it is the intimate knowing of a man and a wife. All right? And he's not talking about getting physical with the Lord, obviously, but he's talking about, this is what I want. This is what I want now. I want to know the Lord. But why? Why is he trashing everything? He was doing it, man. He was doing it. Why trash that just to know the Lord? Why? You're successful. For that, I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Why, Paul? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Ah, That's it. That comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Paul came to the hard, stark, brick wall realization that the one thing he wanted, that he was trying to achieve, was righteousness. That's why he was who he was, doing what he was doing. And when he got knocked off his horse, he realized, I can never do it. I can never do it. If this is you, if you are the person that, you know, there are just people in the world that are like abandoned at birth, and then by the time they're 18, they have 16 e-businesses. You know what I mean? They're extremely capable people. But that does not mean that you can't be intimate with the Lord. If that's you, be encouraged that no one ever said you have to become a wimp. No one ever said that you have to hang your head. No one ever said that you have to tone down your personality. If anything, hey, Paul's was ramped up. Right? Once he submitted that personality to the Lord, the Lord poured some high-octane gas in that and let him go. He told the, the disciples, go out into all the world, and they hung out in Jerusalem. He tells Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles, and he says, well, Lord, it might take a couple decades, but we're going to get this done. That's just who he was. So be encouraged. You can be intimate. But here's the challenge. Every day, Paul had to choose not to rely on himself. Every day. So I would encourage us to do that. I want to talk about one more guy really quick. I know I'm out of time. But this is going to be interesting. Is that okay? Can I have five more minutes? Awesome. Job. Job. Job was unexpected for me. This is who Job was. Okay? In Job 1, we get a picture of what Job's life was like. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Blameless, upright. Sounds a little like Paul. He's doing it. He's, he's perfect by anybody's estimation. And he's also filthy, stinking rich. It goes on to say he's got 5,000 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, all these sons, all these daughters. He's not just comfortable. He's not just wealthy. He's not living in a gated community rich. He's like private island rich back in the day. He was the greatest of all the men in the East, is what the Bible said. This was a wealthy Wealthy, wealthy man. So wealthy that the devil accuses God of making it too easy on him. In verses 9 and 10, the devil says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will curse you to your face. God had blessed Job his entire life. That's all Job had known, apparently, was blessing. So these trials come. He loses everything. He's physically miserable. And in chapter 13, verse 15, what is in Job's heart comes out. And he says, Though he slay me, I will trust him. Another translation says, Though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. He has such a depth of relationship with God. He has such a depth of trust and hope in God because God is trustworthy and he knows that if he depends on him, it's going to work out. But he says, even if I die, in the next verse he says, I'm going to trust that this is going to work out for my deliverance. And he also says right here, I expect to plead my case before God's face. He expects an intimate relationship. Why? Because I believe he's experiencing an intimate relationship with God. But when did he build it? 
It says in chapter 1 that Job actually would hold, he would offer sacrifices for his children even, just in case his children were messing up. He was worried that his children might not respect the Lord. It transcended his own relationship with, with himself and God, and he was worried about his children's relationship with God. This is a righteous man. But when did he build this depth of relationship? The trial only proved the trust was there. The trial only proved that he had faith in God, that he knew God was good. He built that relationship when he was the greatest of the men of the East. And I think that sometimes we do a terrible thing to wealthy people and we make them feel bad. Like, if only they lived in Africa and had nothing, then they could be intimate with God. But be encouraged that that's not true. What does that look like? I don't know. God will tell you if you talk to him. But intimacy is open to everyone. The slightly depressed, the hard-charging type A, and the extremely wealthy. And it's our job to depend. All right, thank you very much.